And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. And he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes and the tribe that the Lord takes by light shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And then skip down to verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, the the devoted things were hidden in his, Achan's tent, with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua, to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why did you bring, bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acre. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, this is a difficult passage. And so we ask that you would speak to us now through the work of your spirit so that we might see our Savior and love him all the more. We ask it in his name and for your glory. Amen. Well, many of you uh, will be familiar with the idea or the concept known as the butterfly effect. Uh, Essentially, uh, it's the notion that the world is deeply interconnected so that one small action or occurrence can influence sort of a much larger complex system. For, for instance, uh, the illustration that is often used, and it's the illustration that gives this concept its name, uh, is that of a small butterfly, say here in Uovni, flapping its wings, 
And that sort of minuscule movement of air eventually causing a typhoon somewhere around the world. Now, obviously, I don't know that there's any scientific proof, uh, any facts that would back this sort of theory that would confirm it in terms of our weather or in terms of how the world actually works. But I think we can recognize the grain of truth that, that this theory contains. You know, often small, seemingly insignificant actions or words, they can have a much larger impact, uh, a much larger impact on everything around us. And that's certainly the case here in the passage before us. You know, one man's sinful actions, one sin leads not only to troubles for the whole covenant community, not only for his family, but also, of course, for himself. One sin leads to a whole host of horrible consequences. And what I want us to see this morning is that is so often the case. It is most often the case when it comes to sin. Rarely are our sins and their consequences only personal. Rarely, in fact, I would submit to you that never do any of us as Christians sin in isolation. Because we are part of a covenant community, because we are part of Christ's church, our sins affect all of those around us. They affect our families and, of course, They affect our Savior who came to die for their sins. Again, never do we sin in isolation. And today, we see the hard reality of that and how devastating that reality can be. And so, with the time that we have left, I want us to consider this, look at it together, and see sin and the butterfly effect. Now, We're going to consider this under three main headings. One, we're going to see the the corporate consequences of sin. Secondly, we're going to see the familial consequences of sin. And then thirdly, we're going to see the individual consequences of sin. But before we jump into our outline, let's just note at the start, as our author does, the the actual sin that leads to all of this story, all that, that is about to come. If you were with us last week, then you'll remember that God has delivered Jericho. He's delivered this great fortified city into the hands of Joshua and into the hands of Israel. And he had reiterated the commands of Moses to the people, to Joshua. In Deuteronomy 20, uh, God had told Moses to tell the people, when you enter into this land, all things that you find there, all living things, everything is to be devoted to to destruction. But notice there in verse 1, Achan, this son of Carmas, of Zebediah, of Zerah, he has taken some of the devoted things. He has sinned and rebelled against God. And what I want us to recognize here at the start, because the, the, the difficulty of this passage is trying to understand why God reacts the way that he does. Why, why are the consequences so far-reaching, and why are they so devastating? And so from the start, we need to understand Achan's sin, the full extent of what he has done. Certainly, 
At the start, we recognize that he has broken God's express commandment. Again, Deuteronomy 20, Joshua chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. God had said, do not keep any of these things. Devote them to destruction. He's broken God's command. Not only that, though, he has also broken a great portion of the moral law that Moses received on the mountain, right? A great portion of the Ten Commandments. He says out of his own mouth that he coveted these things, that he stole these things, right? Not only that, but, but he has made them into idols that he placed before God, this God who had called him, who had redeemed him. And so my point is, is that he has broken not only the express commands, but this larger moral law that God has given. But then there's, there's still more. There's two other things I would have you note. One, note that this is not simply a sin against God, but it's also a sin against the people as a whole. You know, what was God's purpose behind the command in Deuteronomy 20 to devote all things to destruction? Well, if you turn back there and read, you don't have to do that. You can just mark it. But if you read the original intent of the, 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 the devoting all things to destruction, God's purpose, at least in part, was to protect his covenant people, was to keep them from the practices, from the gods, from the idols, from the, the desires of the people of Canaan, right? And now Achan has brought all of that into the camp. He has brought the temptations. He has brought all of those evil practices into the camp. Now this is going to end up being, Achan is one of many who are going to continue to do this. Eventually we're going to get to the end of this book and we're going to see they fail to do what God calls them to do in Deuteronomy 20. And it causes them a whole host of problems as they move forward. But Achan has sinned, not simply against God here, but he, though that is primary, he has sinned against his neighbor. He has sinned against the people. And how does Jesus sum up the whole second part of the law? He says to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Achan's sin is a corporate sort of sin. It's not just individual. It is bigger than himself. Lastly, I would just have you note that, that Achan's sin is not merely a civil infraction in the sense that he needs to go before a judge and the judge needs to declare him guilty. No, it is a religious sin as well. Now look, there's some sense where, where that's always true of sin. It is always a religious act because it separates us from our God and in order for it to be made right, Christ has to die. But I want you to recognize that that's particularly true here in the Old Testament system that God has given them. By taking these things, Achan is making himself unclean, religiously unclean. Not only that, but he is defiling the whole camp. We're going to read in just a second that, that the, the intention God has here is because the devoted things were not destroyed, the whole camp has become the devoted things. Achan himself and all of the people. This, this is a religious infraction that must be dealt with. All are unclean, and now they must be made clean. And so again, friends, my, my, my point of belaboring this is simply to note that this sin 
while it may seem insignificant to us just as we read through this, it is a much larger reality. Achan is and has broken a great portion of God's law in doing what he's done, and he's brought himself and everybody else into that sin. And that leads us to our first point. We see the the corporate consequences of sin. Now, obviously, verse 1 is a sort of editorial note to the reader, right? The, The author is telling us, he's pulling back the curtain so that we can know from the start what has happened here in this story. But Joshua and the leaders, they don't know that, okay? And so with the battle of Jericho seemingly behind them, with it finished and done, he proceeds in verse 2 to the next thing in line, to the next city, to the next battle that is to be waged, and that is, of course, at this city of Ai. And as he did with, with Jericho, he sends out spies to scope out the people and their city, and they return with good news. They, they say, this city is small, the people are few, we don't even have to send our whole force. You just send about 3,000 men And that should be enough to to do the trick. It should be enough to to win the day. So, of course, that's what Joshua does. He sends his 3,000 men. But what happens? Well, it's not just simply that they get defeated. We need to recognize that the whole kind of idea that has been preached over and over and over again through these first six chapters is being turned on its head. Remember, when they came to the Jordan River, And particularly when they came to Jericho, how did the people of Canaan view Israel? Well, Rahab told them that that their hearts melted before Israel because they heard all that God had done. But now the roles are reversed, right? These 3,000 men, they show up and it's their hearts that melt before the Canaanites. The roles have been reversed so that 36 men are killed as Israel flees before this, what was supposed to be an easy victory. Now look, we can imagine what a disaster this must have been for Joshua. Yes, you know, he had assumed leadership, he had done great things up to this point, but you can be sure that he, of all people, remembers how fickle the people had been with Moses and his leadership. How easily they had turned their backs on Moses over and over and over again. And again, this was supposed to have been an easy one, sort of like Mississippi State and Austin P, or Mississippi State and Georgia Southern, or whoever they're playing, right? It's supposed to be an easy one, but it hadn't been. And what happens? Leadership, it gets called into question. So Joshua, he has to be concerned about the reaction of the people. More than that, he has to be concerned about what this means for God. What does this mean for his promises? What does this mean for his presence with the people? And you can see it in his prayer, in his reaction there in verses 6 through 9. He tears his clothes. He falls down on his face in the dust before the ark. And note how he prays there in verse 7. Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all 
to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we have been content to dwell over in the, on the other side of the Jordan. And then there in verse 9, he prays that, that their name might not be cut off, that God's name might not be cut off. Again, he is praying that, that God's promises, God, essentially he's asking, oh, have your promises failed? Is your presence no longer going to go with us? Are you going to forget what you said to Abraham about making his name great? Are you going to forget what you've told us about making your own name great among the people? Have you forgotten? Now look, I'll admit to you that I'm not 100% sure how to read Joshua here. How to read his complaint to God. You find some commentators who applaud the way that he approaches God here. You find others who criticize him. And frankly, I, I don't really know who is right. You know, on the one hand, in verse 7, it, it sounds a whole lot like the people in the wilderness, right? The way that they complained against Moses, the way that they complained against God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt just to come out here and die? Why, why couldn't we just go back there and eat the fish that they had? We had plenty to eat. We had plenty of water. It seems like he is complaining in that same sort of way. And, and he's doing it knowing that God brought them across the Jordan. The miraculous way he brought them across the Jordan. He, he's doing it knowing what he did for them at Jericho. At the same time, though, this is clearly uh, different than the wilderness generation. They had complained against God, against Moses. Joshua here is complaining to God. He is on his face in the dirt before God. For however we might be able to criticize Joshua's words, and I think we can, the truth was in, in a desperate situation, he fled to the only sure and right place. He fled to God and miraculously God hears it. Is it proper? Is it couth? Is it the right way? I don't think so, but he goes. And so maybe this whole scene tells us more about our God than it does about Joshua. Maybe it tells us more about God than it does about the people. He is kind to hear, and he is kind to care and, and, and listen to our desperate pleas and cries even when we come in a way that, that may not be exactly the right way. He hears us and answers, even when our pleas don't necessarily deserve it. And he answers here. And again, I think you can kind of hear the displeasure in his reply. He says, he doesn't say, Joshua, I'm sorry, you're right. No, he says, get up. What are you doing, basically? Why are you here on your face when the reality of the situation is, Israel has sinned. You're coming and you're blaming me or asking me, but what you need to be doing is looking at yourself. You need to be looking at the people. And that's important. Because notice, who is it that receives the, the weight here? It's not Achan. In verse 11, it is Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. It is they who have taken some of the devoted things, right? This is a, a corporate accusation. It's not just Achan, but it is 
the whole of the people. And what caused the issue? It was the sin of the devoted things. Just quickly, let me note that some people have tried to take this passage and said that the issue at Ai was the fact that Joshua didn't pray enough. He didn't pray enough before the battle. If he had prayed, God would have said, no, don't go there. Others have tried to say that the people, the spies, they came back and they were too arrogant. Friends, that may have been the case, but what is the reason they got defeated? It wasn't a lack of prayer and it was not an arrogance. It was the fact that Achan had taken these things. That was the reason why they were defeated. It was sin, and now this sin has gone to the whole body. Now this sin has become corporate, and the disaster is there for us to see. They're defeated. These 36 men are killed. The consequences, they're corporate. Now look, I know many of us, probably, or particularly in our Western society, uh, we don't like this idea of, of corporate, that we all kind of suffer in together. You know, we've been, we've been raised to believe that we're all just independent agents, that we aren't dependent on anyone or anything, and that we're all going to be judged for our own actions independently of everybody else. Well, friends, that's not, it's just not the biblical truth. That's not what God has revealed to us, and that's particularly not what Christ has revealed to us about his church. He has united us together as a covenant community so that we are one body. Sin, sin of the individual, it affects us all. And I think we recognize, if we'll take a minute to think about it, we, we recognize that hard reality all around us. How many churches are in turmoil this morning? How many churches have fallen apart due to sin that began with one person or maybe two people? How many denominations are struggling right now? And there's many because of the small acts of an individual. More than that, how many churches, how many denominations, whole groups of Christianity are dealing with the reality of verse 12. You know, the, 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 the scariest verse of all of this is not the end where Achan is destroyed. The, the scariest verse is verse 12, where God says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy these things. God is so serious about this, he is going to turn his back on his covenant people unless they deal with the sin that is in their midst. Because the truth is, is whether we like it or not, our actions, our sins, they are not just ours alone. They affect the whole community. And again, the, the consequences are often devastating. This is why church discipline is such an important thing. We're going to come back to this in just a minute. But, but why do you think Paul is so insistent over and over and over again upon the church taking disciplinary action against those who have fallen away? 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, Titus 3, Romans 16, and we could keep going, but he knows that to leave sin unattended to, to not deal with it, which frankly is what we all want to do, it will lead the church to rue, and it will lead God's people to, not just the individual, but the whole church. 
So we have the, the corporate consequences of sin. Secondly, notice here the familial consequences of sin. Now look, we could have included this under corporate, so we won't spend a lot of time here, but I thought it was worth considering separately because this is something that is so prevalent and important and the, the, the uh, reality of which is, is so devastating, I think, in our society today. God gives Joshua this, this method to find who the culprit is. And we're not going to take the time to read back through it again, but ultimately, the light falls to Achan. But notice, it is not just Achan that takes the consequences here. It is himself and his family and his whole household who receive the, the penalty for sin. It is the whole name of Achan that takes the penalty. Now some have said maybe this was because the family was somehow complicit in his sin. They knew about it and they didn't say anything. And maybe that's the case. But notice at every turn, once we get past this sort of corporate idea, it's Achan who is the one who has sinned. It's not his family. It is Achan's sin that God points to over and over and over again. And so my tendency is to think that the household was not complicit in what Achan had done. That certainly leaves us with some hard questions, doesn't it? Why did the whole family have to bear the consequences? Well, I think one commentator, he gets it right when he says this. The sad inclusion of Achan's sons and daughters in the punishment implies that God would not only take Achan's own life, but also demand his name. Here, a reference to all future generations. They would all be given back to God as part of the devoted things. Now, men, however we want to interpret that in light of the cross, one thing is clear. God views husbands as the, the heads of households, okay? And he takes sin far more seriously and that role of head as household far more seriously than, than most of us do. He recognizes that our actions, whether we can see it or not, whether we like it or not, have generational effects. Our sin has generational effects. And again, how evident this truth is in the church and in our world today. It is no coincidence that as the family has broken down, the family unit, as fathers have given up their role and their involvement in the lives of their children and of their family, that, that the church, that God's people, have begun to suffer. Men and ladies too, our sin is not our own. Our families, unfortunately, bear the weight, the burden of that sin as well. God says he visits the iniquity of the father to generations. We read that and we want to move on to the next thing. 
But here we see how true that is. And so there are familial consequences of sin. It's, it's generational. Thirdly and finally, notice the, the individual consequences of sin. And you see it there in verse 25. It says, and Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you, Achan, today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire, and they stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acre. The consequences were death. And notice, it's here that we get to our second stone memorial of Joshua. Remember, I told you back when they built the memorial at the Jordan that there was going to be seven of these. Well, the one at the Jordan represented God's faithfulness, represented his power to lead them into the promised land. And now, here they are, right after the first battle, they build another one. And it's to remind them of the awful reality of sin. They may be able, just as, as Ben said, Achan may have thought he could hide it. And he tried to. He tried to hide it in his tent, and no one would know. But God knew. He knows our hearts. He sees those hidden places. He knows the reality of our sin. And none of it will, will go just by the wayside. He won't sweep any of it just under the rug. We said last week, that, that we may not like this. We, we may think that God's reaction here is too much. Friends, that only shows how little we understand the true nature of sin. It only shows how little we appreciate how awful and how bad it truly is in the sight of God and what it truly deserves, as he is the Holy One and we are not. As one commentator says, some diseases, they cannot be treated with vitamin pills but they require radical surgery. We may think sin is no big deal, but that does not alter God's estimate. Again, we said it before, but the wages of sin is death. Here, that is crystal clear. Achan has sinned, and he is cut off. He receives the punishment that, that sin deserves. Receives death. Now look, we, we may think that the New Testament ha has softened this sort of thing, that, that this scene is just an Old Testament reality that we don't have to worry about. And, look, and God certainly does not call us as his people to enact the death penalty any longer. But I would just simply remind you of two things by way of conclusion. First one gets us back to this whole idea of church discipline. No, we, we no longer enact the death penalty for the sins of the people in the church. But the call that Paul gives us and the call that the New Testament apostles give us in some way is just as radical. The call for those who refuse to repent, for those who refuse to come to God and refuse over and over and over again the reality of the gospel, the call is to cut them off. It's to exclude them from the people of God. No longer are they a part of the community. No longer are they privy to all of Christ's benefits. It's almost as if they have received the death penalty. God, friends, Old Testament, New Testament, whenever, he is still serious about sin. His, his view of it has not changed since Joshua chapter 7. 
And that leads us to the second reminder I would give you. Friends, may we never forget if, if we have avoided the consequences of sin, if we have avoided the future consequences of sin that are sure to come, it is only because Christ took the consequences in our place. We don't like Joshua chapter 6 or Joshua chapter 7 because it, it, it makes us uneasy, it makes us squirmy. We don't like the reality of what sin deserves. But friends, if that's the case, then we can't like the gospel message because what Jesus took was exactly what we all should have received. He took the corporate punishment, the corporate consequences of sin. You see that there in that verse on top of your bulletin, Romans 5, chapter, in, in verse 17. For if because of one man's transgression, that is Adam, our federal head, death reigned through that one man. So through Adam, death entered the world. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He has taken the corporate effects of sin and given us his perfect righteousness. He's taken the familial consequences of sin so that our Christian families today, they may not be completely overwhelmed. They might stand and not be cut off. And friends, he has taken the individual consequences of sin so that for those who put their faith in him, they might never bear the weight of their sin. They might never feel the weight of what their sins are. They may not end up like Achan here in Joshua chapter 7. All of us, every single one, myself included, all of us have broken the covenant. All of us are as guilty as Achan. And yet Christ, in his mercy, in his love, as we read in the call to worship, he has separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He has not given us what our sins deserve. Now, does that mean that we won't face the results of our sins, at least in terms of, of earthly consequences? No. And so we should flee from sin. We should run from it. But it does mean in him there is hope that we will never be cut off, that our families, that God's people through faith will persevere to the end. And it's all because of what Christ has done. Friends, sin is, is a horrible thing. It has wide-reaching, wide-ranging consequences. We would do well to take it seriously, to turn from it. Most of all, we would do well. Our only hope is in Christ. So may we turn to him. May we rest in him. And may we be transformed by his love and his grace as we pray together. Father God, we do ask that you would... Remind us often of the truth of who we are, uh, that you would show us our sin, uh, that you would show us the, the terrible reality of what it deserves. But at the same time, Father, hold up to us the, the only hope for sinners. Hold up to us Jesus who has taken our guilt and the consequences there at the cross and dealt with them once and for all. Lord, if we have hope today, if we can hear those words, there are now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we can say that that is true about us, it is because of what he has done, only what Jesus has done. 
And so, Lord, I pray for each person here. I pray that, that as we have heard some, that each of us would come, just as we are, that we would come to the cross, that we would come to the Savior, that we would fall down before him. And, Lord, even if it is uncouth, even if it is, is not the proper way, Lord, may we come confessing our sins, crying out, pleading to God, because, Lord, there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved other than Christ. Lord, we praise you for him. We praise you for your love. We praise you for your mercy. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.